Uh, welcome back, Street Smart Podcast. I'm here with uh, Chad Robichaud, which, uh, again, I'm trying very hard not to fanboy out because, uh, you know, just a really, really uh, – I remember watching you fight in uh, in MMA, and that's where I knew your name from. And then, you know, lo and behold, uh, the rest of your story is amazing. So thank you so much for taking time to, to sit with us and, and have a conversation. No, thanks, and thanks for coming coming here. Yeah, this place is great. Uh, you're, I know this is a temporary facility. You guys are, are broke ground out on 105 at, near the near Lake Conroe. Yeah. And uh, you guys are on uh, how many acres out there? We're on four acres. We're going to build a 12,000 square foot. That's be our international uh, headquarters. And, oh, man, uh, and then inside of it, we'll have a, we'll have a really killer studio. So, that's great. Yeah. Are you going to put a jiu-jitsu gym in it? Uh, well, not really a jiu-jitsu gym, but we're going we, to have some mats in the gym area. We want to have a, a workout area where uh, you know, some of our alumni in the area could, could you know, feel comfortable to have a place to go work out at. Sure. Not, not be in a busy gym. And then, and then uh, we have – I mean, I'm not the only black belt on our staff. We have like – we have like five black belts in, in, that work for Mighty Oaks, and uh, just coincidental. It never was intentional, but uh, so just a place to get on the mats and, and train as yeah, well. Uh, Mighty Oaks, the most dangerous nonprofit on the planet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We had we had some we had some you know pretty guys with some amazing military backgrounds, obviously. But mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, when it comes to jujitsu, we got some we got some studs. And were they were they black belts when they got here, or did you help that? No, uh, I mean, uh, I think a mix, but none of them started jiu-jitsu and got a black belt from here. I mean, okay. um, all, all of them, you know, one of them is my son, Hunter, who works here. He's you know, been training with me since he was sure. could walk, uh, or before he could walk probably. But, um, yeah, so he's got a black belt. John Davis uh, runs our first responder side of our program. Uh, I met him when he was a purple belt, and, and now he's got his black belt under myself and uh, Tom Cronin at Carlson Gracie, mm-hmm. uh, Reed Hasty out of a uh, – Reed Hasties out of uh, Oklahoma is one of our team leaders, and he's he's got a black belt. And then we have a couple of, a couple of other guys as well. Jeez. Yeah. D- Dustin Schellheimer, who's came out and t- actually, you know what? Dustin started my started came to Mighty Oaks. He was like three hundred something pounds, uh, like three fifty, really overweight uh, and not healthy at all. What had no physical activities. During his week at Mighty Oaks, we went out to the gym and trained, mm-hmm. and so he started jiu-jitsu through Mighty Oaks. He was like, "Hey, I'm go- I love this. I want to go." So he was going back to West Texas, and he happened. To- he's like, "Is there a gym where I live?" And Bruno Bastos was. was oh, he in lives in town. Midland. Yeah, he lives in Midland. So I'm like, "Man, Bruno's like in your town. Like sure. that's where you need to train." And so in every year, he, he lost in-, in the first six months, he lost like 100 pounds, and then he won worlds and pans at every belt level. Oh wow! And, and then he just got his black belt. So yep, there there's one from Mighty Oaks, white belt to black belt. That's amazing. I was born and raised in Midland. It's funny that yeah. uh, you know when Bruno has a great school out there yeah and and he's a i mean obviously bruno is you know he's known right he's a right. competitor and everything and and uh that's that's funny that's great though that, yeah. that you have uh, that you can claim him as a homegrown homegrown yeah. black belt it'll change your life uh, and i know that you have spoken at length about what it did for you uh, yeah. obviously when you got back from uh, you know afghanistan and, and those types of things i'd love to get into that and and i really run the risk of this episode becoming Almost all exclusively jujitsu because <laughs> you know how it gets. You can sit down and, and uh, yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it turns up at quick. But one of the things I wanted to start with was uh, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? An astronaut. I mean, I, every uh, adventurous kid wants to oh, sure. be an astronaut. Sure. Uh, no, I, I do. And I, I say that jokingly, but I, I did. I remember wanting to be an astronaut. I always had like a, a love for adventure, and, and, and um, but probably more in my – in my early like maybe like as young as 12 years old to like 13 years old that time frame 
was the military mm-hmm. picked up my interest. So at a young age, military picked up my interest. And it uh, came, came in a weird way because my family served for 84 years now, uh, all the way back World War II, Korea, wow. Vietnam. Uh, you know, I did eight to to Afghanistan. My son did a deployment to Afghanistan. So 84 years and 54, that's from the Marine Corps. But my, my dad was like, not a very great person. He was a very dysfunctional mm-hmm. human being, like angry, violent guy. And uh, but the only thing that ever made my dad happy was the fact that he was a United States Marine. And and I think something about that like made it like you know you kind of like this dark environment, and then this like even a spark like so bright. And you know that's how it was. Like looking at my dad and how you know just dark of a person it was. But the one bright thing in his life was his his pride and the fact that you know, just for a few years of his life sure. he was a United States Marine, and, and he always just and I'm like. Man, I think that's what I want to do. I yeah, want to, there I want, must be something that. to that. Yeah, yeah. Something to that, and uh, yeah, so that's so I always want to you know, be in the military from that young age. But you didn't do the military straight away, though. You were a police officer. Actually, no, I, I did the military first. Okay, and, and then I went. So I did. I went in the Marine Corps when I was seventeen years old, uh, and I, I'll, I'll take a step back when I was when I was thirteen and did decide to join. Um, I had a brother who's a year older than me, and the two of us decided to do it together. It was okay. kind of like, you know, one, you know, we want to join the military, but two, we uh, it, we grew up in this real dysfunctional environment, so uh, we we wanted to get away from that. Yeah, it was a way it's out. A way out, yeah. And uh, both of us did more shorts. I started when I was five, and uh, and so that was the one positive thing in my life. And so we were both athletes from being, you know, doing judo and traditional jujitsu, and uh, and so we uh, we wanted to and. and and then being in southern Louisiana, you're out in the swamp in the bayous playing military. You're from Louisiana? I mean, your last name is Robichaux. I wasn't yeah, exactly. quite sure, but yeah. yeah. So, I mean, like, there was that. And then we were, I think I was 13, he was like 14, and we saw this video of these Navy SEALs. Mm-hmm. And this Navy SEAL was like coming out of the water with like his face was painted green. He had a boonie hat on, an M16 rifle, and right. seaweed hanging off of him, and these two twin eighty scuba tanks on his back. And I'm like, I want to do that. I want to do that. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what I want to do. But uh, but I didn't want to join the Navy. <laughs> I uh, and I wanted to be a Marine, so I learned about. Uh, Marine Recon and then Marine for- Force Recon, like particularly the unit Third Force Recon, which ultimately ended up serving and eventually in Vietnam. And I started reading these books about these Recon Marines of Vietnam, and I became infatuated with it. Sure. So my brother and I trained at that early age. When I was thirteen. I, even in Louisiana, no one taught me about health or fitness, whatever. But I started like I stopped drinking sodas. I started drinking water. I started eating right. Stopped eating candy. Like I don't know where I even picked up that concept from. But I started being healthy and I started running. And swimming, and about a year into that, my brother was was shot and killed. So it was, oh, wow. it was like extremely devastating for me and a little bit of family I had. But I made this commitment to do that, sure. and I stuck with that through that depression and isolation. And my family fell apart. And when I was about 15 years old, my dad couldn't handle the you know grieving mother anymore, so he left. And it ended up me and my older sister, who was about 20 at the time, ended up living alone, the two of us. Mm. And uh, and I probably wasn't going to graduate high school because I was trying to work and do it at the same time. And, and so I, I went to Marine Corps recruiter and I just told him my story and, and how I wanted to be a recon Marine. And, and, uh, he helped me get in without a high school diploma. I was 17 years wow. old, um, 1993, which is very, even then you couldn't get in without a high school diploma, but, uh, he wrote a hardship letter to the Marine Corps and, and got me in and I got an infantry contract and went to Marine Corps boot camp at 17. And, uh, and then ultimately I, uh, went to infantry school. And then after that, I went to 29 Palms, California, and uh, kept my promise to him that I get my GED, and I got my GED. All these years later, I have MBA, and right, right. I, jo- I joke a lot when I speak. I'm like, I can't spell MBA, but I got one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but so that's how I went in the Marine Corps. And that first year, I tried out to be a recon Marine, and that was my promise that I felt like me and my, it felt like it was a promise I had to my brother. 
and uh and, and and i made it the first you know it's if anybody knows anything about marine recon it's like the rest of special operations like 80 percent attrition rate so it's very difficult especially at the young age and but i made it through and uh and lots of great jobs in the military but to me there's probably not a job that fit me more uh, you know combat scuba diving mm-hmm. and, and uh and jumping and uh, i love skydiving still and uh, you know i i went to military free fall school and i eventually became a, a halo team leader and you know so doing that job was like the best fit for me and uh and but i did that four years of active duty and then i decided to i was gonna stay in because i just i got married i've been married 27 years now i got married had my oldest son hunter and uh, i'm like man if i'm gonna make this a career i probably should go to college sure. and, uh, and become an officer so i went i went back to louisiana i joined the reserve unit in mobile alabama third force recon company and uh and then i while i was going to college i became a police officer so that's the four years i was a police officer okay and it was it was during that time during that four year period where you know those planes flew in those World Trade Center buildings and mm. and uh, you know I I knew I was even as a reservist at Third Force Recon Company being in it's that time, time special yeah. operations unit I'm like you know we were going to get deployed and 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 I didn't even wait I, I resigned from being a police officer went on active duty right away went to, went on active active orders in my command and uh, you know it was a period after that but I eventually uh, got deployed I tried out for JSOC Task Force the Joint Special Operations Command Task Force. And uh, and went in that capacity, and ultimately ended up doing eight deployments to Afghanistan. And all eight as a as an active duty Marine, or I. Uh, so I I went as a Marine, but I was I went at the JTOC Task Force. Mm-hmm. I went to a Navy unit. Okay. Uh, uh, it was a Naval Special Warfare unit that led that task force. And okay. So, um, so there was a couple of Force Recon Marines that went there. You know, people in JSOC, yeah, people from all the different other special sure. operations. But it was an NSW, you know, SEAL led. Uh, task force yeah but you're you uh, my point was you weren't there as a civilian contractor you were there no. as a t- military asset i w- yeah i went there i went there originally as as a marine and then towards the end i was a contractor oh. i actually stayed at that same command in that same job actually uh i didn't want to leave the command mm-hmm. and i would have had to leave so I, I chose to stay there and i got a contract directly with that command oh fantastic yeah yeah man that's a, that's amazing and, it's, and you know it's funny you talk about that uh that seal commercial that you saw and I have a, a friend that's a, a Green Beret, uh, actually lives in Spring now, but he ta- he calls that the seal reveal. And he says that's it's very compelling <laughs> yeah. that coming out of the water is the, the seal reveal. Yeah, they did such a good job of marketing, you know, yeah. and they, they got all the – but, you know, the, there's lots of great special operations jobs sure. out there that a lot of people don't even, don't even know about. And, um, you know, the, at that time, not a lot of people knew about Marine Recon. Uh, True. And, uh, and uh, or even SF Army SF the Green Berets like back then everything was Navy SEAL and that Charlie Sheen you know I was going to ask <laughs> if you remembered that movie that movie was terrible oh yeah uh, if you watch it now I remember watching it when it came out and thinking this is the greatest movie ever made yeah it wasn't and, and it was not <laughs> and it does not hold up at all so yeah, yeah I need yeah. to go back and watch it now you should it, you'll uh, you'll be extremely disappointed <laughs> at least I was for sure uh, but yeah so. So that and I didn't know that that you'd actually gone active duty Marine. I thought that you uh, police officer first. So, yeah. uh, so the World Trade Center stuff happens. You get ready to deploy eight times, uh, and and how did your de- how did your deployments end? When did how did when did you come back and not go back again? Uh, April, April of two thousand and seven. Okay, April of two thousand and seven. I you know the deployments were hard. I sure. Mean, uh, I, I, the reason I did a lot of deployments is wasn't because you know, and I always want to say this like. When you're at JSOC, your deployments are typically like three to six months. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people 
might think eight deployments at 15 months that's not right. what we did. yeah, yeah. Uh, i mean we, Man, we were there forever yeah, yeah so yeah usually like three to six months so that was like the average or not deployments we come home like three months mm-hmm. and you're back again so it's very rapid uh and the reason why is because you know most conventional forces they, they'll go out there for nine to nine twelve fifteen months but they're on base most of the time mm-hmm. and, and they'll go off base every once in a while we're you know a special operations community particularly at jsoc and our task force like in those eight deployments, I, sp- I probably spent two weeks on a base. Yeah, uh, the rest of the time, yeah. yeah, so you have to, like, come back, kind of re- recharge. And and, uh, and it's not like you're doing different operation each time. Like, I, the, all eight of my deployments was one operation. I okay. was like, go- going home and then have to get back out there. So it's, like, not separate. Like, hey, on this deployment, we did this. And you come home, and on this deployment, we're going to do something totally different. It was the same operation. Sure. Okay. So, so it was just one, an extended operation that you would go back and forth and just continue to, to support. Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, and so it's really interesting, you know, when I was going through your, your history and looking through, you know, kind of listening to a couple things and preparing a bit, uh, it, it you could say that you've, you've lived a, you know, like a bunch of different lives, right? So the, yeah. the military life and then the, you were police officer for a bit and then back in the military and then in the you know civilian area, MMA fighter, uh, fighting for some of the biggest promotions, and at you know, at, at the time you were fighting for Strike Force and Bellator, and those those promotions, they were definitely competing with UFC in terms yeah. of competition level and and uh, and and status. So, it, do you ever look back on it that way, or or is it just that as you were doing that throughout your life, you're just like, well, this is what I'm doing now? Yeah, it just always seemed kind of normal, like what I was doing now. It never seemed like a you know a huge deal. Um, in fact, when I was fighting in Strike Force, it was owned by the UFC. Oh, that's uh, I had a, yeah. My contract was a Zufa, a Zufa contract, I think. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, it was. Uh, but I, I mean, for me, more. Sure, I never like uh, grew up and was like, I want to be an MMA fighter. Like sure. right now, no kids are like growing up and they're like watch UFC and they're like, I want to be George St. Pierre. I want right. to be you know Khabib. Like that wasn't ever the case for me. Like I, I started in martial arts when i was five years old and i competed in martial arts my whole life and then i competed in this event and this event and then one day you know i'm in a boxing ring in a warehouse right, in right. louisiana and we got some little you know foam gloves on or sometimes no gloves and punch each other head or slap each other it was just a progression of competing i never thought like oh now i'm doing mma yeah now i'm doing this yeah and then and then i actually had done a couple of pro fights before i realized i was even licensed as a pro fighter like i was fighting louisiana <laughs> and and like oh well this fight had a had a uh, uh actually somebody from the state there and they actually had an ambulance and a doctor which was really cool and oh, right. uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, and and then i'm like oh that's that means it was sanctioned and yeah and now it's and now you're yeah, a pro fighter now you're a pro fighter like it was very different when when i started you know my first amateur fight was in 97 my first professional fight was in 99 the sport was really just developing there and, and as a jiu-jitsu guy and a grappler it was kind of like cheating because you'd you know, fight in a taekwondo yeah. guy and that taekwondo guy i had no idea you know? no yeah, I, yeah a buddy of mine uh who's also a marine actually he's a, a black belt in taekwondo and someone asked us one time and this was when i was a blue belt uh who would win the fight and his answer was well i better land the kick <laughs> And I yeah. said, yeah, because I'm going to get you to the ground and it'd be horrible for you. But yeah, uh, yeah it, when you were fighting, especially in jiu-jitsu now, obviously MMA is really interesting how it's changed over the years. You got people that are training MMA now. They're not, right. They're not you, you don't have, hey, this guy's a boxer and this guy's a jiu-jitsu guy. We'll see what happens. Uh, but when you did, it's almost like you had a, uh, a magic wand that you were waving over the ring like, and it's over. You yeah. Know, so I, I mean, I, I would literally like like waiting for the gun to fire off in a sprinting in a, in a 500 yard dash. Like right. I, I would, when the referee would say go, I'd sprint across that ring and try <laughs> to jam them in the corner before they could ever get 
get, get going. It, yeah, yeah, get them to the ground and then just grind them <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, I did did not want that guy to get in the middle of the ring and, and have to strike with them. I, my striking was terrible back then. Well, <laughs> I would like to point out you do have a KO, and it was your I think it was your last fight. Well, it, it's on my record as a KO, but technically it, it, it they put KO because I choked him unconscious. Oh. So they put they put KO. That was Andrew Yates and yeah. Well, that yeah. doesn't count as a KO. Yeah, it's That's a KO. just a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a submission, submission by yeah. choke. Yeah, I think mixedmartialarts.com has me as eighteen and two with a seventeen, uh, but seventeen of those wins would have been right. submissions and, and one decision, which would have been strike force here in Houston at the Toyota Center. That's awesome, man. Yeah. And you know what's one thing I don't think people realize is is the, you know, and again this is an entrepreneurial podcast. When you are a, a mixed martial artist you you are the company like i mean it's yeah. you and and so when you're when you're doing that and you, you start realizing you know oh man i'm making money doing this mm. um did, did you think of it as a business at that time or did you think of it as like man i just i'm just me i'm just a pro athlete yeah you know like so when i came home from afghanistan it you know because of the fact that i switched a contractor um my career was over i was diagnosed with ptsd i was mm -hmm. right out of my program i could not deploy anymore i needed to do something to take care of my family and uh and um what i was good at was uh being a, being a force recon brain tearing and, some and, things up yeah and, and, and jiu-jitsu and that was that was the two things i was i felt good at and uh, and i just finished my mba and um and i was you know i was talking to my wife and i'm like i, I think you know we're gonna open a jiu-jitsu gym and so when i when i opened the jiu-jitsu gym I think the fighting, the Ultimate Fighter was just around that same time. This mm -hmm. is 2007. Um, I couldn't tell you exactly when Ultimate Fighter, but I know it's a big thing at mm -hmm. the t around that time. I, I knew that if I was going to be successful uh, running a martial arts school, from my from my eyes, and everybody might not agree with this, from my eyes, I needed to be able to represent uh, myself as a, as an athlete, professional athlete. I wanted people to want to come train with me because right. I could prove that I was a successful martial artist, not just say I was. Sure. And uh, so I knew I needed to get back in the, into that cage and, and, and fight. And at the time, I was undefeated. And, uh, and so there was this desire to compete. I've always had the desire to compete, but I also looked at it as a business holistically, not just me as a business, as a, as a professional athlete, but me as a school owner. Those mm -hmm. two were one and the same to me. And, so uh, you were almost using your mixed martial arts career as a as a marketing campaign for your gym. I, I was, I was, and uh, you know, I, I think a lot of uh, fighters either either do that or they retire and then try to open and sure. open a gym later. And uh, you know, as but to me, like at the time, I need I, the fighting wasn't going to make enough money to, right. to live on at, at that time. It's not like now, uh, even now. I mean, it, well, unless you're a champion now, yeah. you don't make great money. You're not making great money. I mean, even if you go into UFC. You know, you might make ten thousand and ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars if you win. Right, and, and then you, you got to pay your team, and yeah, you got to pay your team and your training and your your meals and your uh, all kind of stuff. And uh, sure. if you fight, if you go into camp, train, going to like uh, traveling to go to a camp. To f so I mean, yeah, even if, even in best case scenario, your first year, year in the UFC, if you win three fights, you're probably looking at you, you know, sixty grand minus expenses. Right, right. You're not making. You're you not know, making it's much. Not get, not making much. Not with, not with guys at five dollars a gallon, right? Sure, so, sure. So uh, so I mean, for me, like. Back back then, even in my highest payday was like I, I made thirty thousand dollars, yeah. And uh, it, for for a fight, like, but most of the fights were like were like five thousand dollars, yeah, uh, or or under. And so I had to have a gym to be able to support me fighting. But uh, so the the profitability from a business standpoint, from an entrepreneur standpoint, the profitability was was fighting and using that platform as a fighter 
to have people trust me to teach them jujitsu. Sure. And uh, that's why it was very important, not just how, not just to win, but how, you but how won. I won. Yeah. And, uh, and jiu-jitsu, I always wanted to represent jiu-jitsu. I'm a jiu-jitsu person. I mean, I wasn't going to avoid a knockout, but uh, right. but I certainly would rather choke someone out or get him in a, get a leg lock or armbar because it, it showed my jiu-jitsu. And, uh, and, you know, so I'm very proud of the fact that I have my 18 wins. As a jiu-jitsu guy, I got 17 submissions. Uh, you know. well, I mean, all of let's just call it what it is. The one they're saying is a knockout. You choked the guy unconscious. I choked him unconscious. So, I mean, it's still it jiu-jitsu, right? It's a north-south choke. North South pillow choke, yeah. yeah. I put him, put him unconscious with that. Yeah. That's, and so yeah, so I'm, I, I felt like I represented jujitsu well, and people wanted to learn my jujitsu because of that, and and, uh, and and so yeah, I used MMA. Although I love competing, I used sure. MMA as as my platform to build students. And so when I opened my school right there on Rayford Sawdust, not far far from where we are right now, um, this was, uh, you know, just a few months after Afghanistan, like. Like October, August, September, maybe like September's uh, so, uh, of two thousand seven. And you, you cycled out in April. You said right. Yeah. So just a few it, months. It was a few yeah. months. It was super quick. I had to take care of my family, and uh, I put a little mobile mini thing out front. I put train like an ultimate fighter on the banner, uh, and I had a guy in MMA, which, uh, and then and then uh, I put that little mobile mini out, and I started selling. We we had we had a uh, almost we had almost uh, three hundred memberships sold before i opened the doors to that gym oh man and, and what and, how how much of a relief was that it was it was it was huge i mean it was sure. like i mean to me to be able to take care of my family and yeah and uh be able to do this something i love i'm like man this is going to be great and within three years uh we had almost a thousand students man that's great which is which is incredible i mean i mean i don't even know if you could do that right now and, and if i could do that right now because it was just it was the right timing for me i put a lot of work into it i treat it like a business uh which i don't think a lot of martial arts schools mm -hmm. treat them like businesses they treat them like a club i treat it like a business and uh and i and i was i was on the mats teaching which is very important a lot of people open a school especially a lot of fighters open a school and mm -hmm. they're worried about them fighting them fighting and they're and they're and the and and have someone else teach have their blue so i was always in the mats teaching i just worked really hard to make sure that i was building at the time like you know you open the school right now you're gonna have all kind of people from everywhere sure when i opened the school and had like 300 students out of the gate i'm like this is a mount yeah <laughs> this is side control this is the guard like right like right. And, okay now today we're gonna teach you how, now today we're gonna teach you how to move from the guard to side control like right and then Okay, we teach you how to move from the guard to side control, and here's a key lock. We yeah, and this that. was also before. Uh, now you get a lot of people that come in, and they'll have it. They've either watched UFC or something like that, and they think they know what they're doing. Yeah. Or YouTube, they can watch these videos on YouTube, and you know, half the time, yeah, half the time you're you're missing a lot of the detail. But yeah, even then, you're talking people just off the street going, "What is this jujitsu thing? Let's try that." Yeah, we just really invested in that school. And one of the things, I, as I started winning more fights, I had the opportunity to go train at, at the time. Greg Jackson's mm -hmm. was very big, uh, Extreme Couture. And I did go to train with Randy later on. But at the time, like, I wanted to train at my gym. I felt like, yeah. the, for me, I was like, I could go to these camps, but if I'm going to win fights, I want to win fights with the people I train with yeah, every out day. Out of my gym. Yeah, out of my gym. Yeah. And so I chose to stay there. Uh, Lewis Wood, who's a great boxing coach from this area, uh, myself eve edwards tim cordor rocky long uh he was coaching all of us in, in boxing and and uh jody trantham was a great wrestling coach here uh who, who so all all people from this area sure. like, like trained us to fight todd moore you fought in dream fought uh, shinya yoki and dream around that time we were all training together and just like really really you know some some tough guys and, and out of that group of people uh out of that initial group of students i had yeah, Jared Chafee, who have, who's a black belt under me, um, mm -hmm. who you know fought fought in Bellator, had a great run. You had Alex Morano, who's who's a 
Alex Morano started with me when he was 15 yeah. years old, and now he owns he owns that he owns that gym. Yeah, and he's a uh, you know he's 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 got a, you know he's a ranked guy in the UFC right sure. now, and he's doing really well. And and uh, Ricky Tercio started. He was like I think he was like 13 years old, and now he won the Ultimate Fighter. Like all those guys came out of that initial group back in 2007 there's a great group of fighters right now coming out of the houston area yeah. it's pretty fun to watch you know and and maybe the most entertaining one right now is Derek lewis but you know his, his instagram <laughs> is, is hilarious but uh but anyway yeah and you know one thing i didn't know uh about you when we started when i started looking into this is you also have a black belt in japanese jiu-jitsu correct yes yeah yeah, yeah. that's what started when i was a kid yeah uh, i actually went to my grandmother you know seeing what was going on in my home and she just wanted something positive in my life and she Raceland, Louisiana, which How'd you remember Raceland, Louisiana. Uh, I mean, so the, right across from Central LaFouche High School was this, in uh, a building still there. It's like a little A-frame building on the second floor was this, was this Taekwondo school. And that's where they dropped me off when I was what, five years old. My grandmother knew nothing about martial sure. arts. And, uh, and, and I was in this school, and, and they had this small group of people doing judo. And I, I was five years old, so I can't, can't remember, recall, but yeah. my grandmother and my mom says I was gravitated towards that and I went trained with these guys doing judo. And from judo, I did Japanese jiu-jitsu mm-hmm. and, and judo my, you know, all the way growing up. And then I went in the Marine Corps in 1993. In 1995, I was, all my recon training had finally like settled down. And I'm like, okay, I have to get back into martial arts some, my whole life. And I saw this sign at the base gym that said jiu-jitsu, uh, but it was spelled different. Yeah. And I spelled and I, you know, didn't think anything of it. And I went to train and it was these, these blue belts from Torrance, California, from the Grace University in, mm-hmm. in Torrance, California. And, uh, and I'm thinking blue belts teaching, like hmm. that That's makes weird. sense to me. And, uh, and I got rolled up and embarrassed. <laughs> and, uh, I think when people get rolled up and embarrassed, when they get introduced to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, they have two reactions. You know, one is I never want to feel like that again mm-hmm. or two is i have to learn that yeah. like i, I can't I let that happen this. ever again yeah, i yeah. want to whatever they just did i want to learn and that was my reaction that as a martial artist is like i, I want to learn this and uh sure. and so in 1995 i began my journey with brazilian jiu-jitsu and mm. you know it's been a long time now but yeah, yeah. My, my journey with it is is funny my my youngest daughter who's now uh she's 16 she's a junior in high school at conroe actually she wrestles for the school and uh she was eight at the time and we were living in Fort Worth and uh, she just seen Ronda Rousey fight and she goes, I want to do that. And I was like, okay, whatever. And uh, she gets on and, and finds a school in uh, the Keller area, a guy named Paul Hallmay who owns peak, uh, peak performance. And he's a Travis Luter black belt. Yeah. And uh, she goes, hey, we were living in Keller. So she says, I want to go here. And I was like, okay. So we go there, she starts competing, doing well. And uh, I remember she, she didn't do well in one tournament. She got stuck on bottom, and I wasn't training. And I, I remember telling her after the tournament, you got to get up. You can't be down. She, and she's eight or nine years old, right? So she tells me, she says, I don't want to sound rude to you right now, but you don't do this, and you don't know how hard that is. And so that next Monday, I, I went in and trained and had a, a, a white belt that maybe been training like six months hold me down. He felt like he weighed 400 pounds, and my response was, well, that can't happen again. Like, yeah. That's ridiculous. But I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen – uh, and it, it seems like a lot of times it's first responders and you know, law enforcement that come in, get rolled up, and they never come back. And it, it, yeah. It's yeah. got to be just a pride thing. I don't know. Yeah, just embarrassed, and uh, they don't want to experience being exposed like that. I think they, 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 especially they, men have that. It's this, you know, this ego that, like I said, yeah, that's usually two responses. And, but they definitely rip it away from yeah. you. And yeah. you just got stem cells, right? I did. I did. And yeah. so the rumor I heard after that was that you're going to restart your MMA career, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. With the 47-year-old <laughs> yeah. come, back, come back. Yeah. At least that's the rumor I'm going to start anyway. 
it's it's a you know i've been on the mats a lot like i said i just started started in 90 you know started 42 years ago on sure. the mats but but now you know brazilian jitsu in 95 and then i just you know last year or maybe a year and a half ago now i got my my fourth degree black belt from Carlson gracie jr and that's who uh, the team i represent now and i've been in a crossing i started off i got my black belt originally under daviera draclino the gracie baja guys and mm-hmm. then, uh and then a uh, draclino is such an amazing human being and and then i moved to california and and going there there wasn't a gracie Baja where it was and Draclino is very close to Carlson Gracie Jr. and so I, I came under, went under Carlson Gracie Jr. and and have been, but you know, I've got my third and fourth degrees under him, and That's he's great. become a great friend. And uh, and I still, by the way, I still am very close to Draclino. We're we're very tight still. And, and uh, but but uh, you know, all those years on the mats, twenty MMA fights, mm. uh, eight deployments to Afghanistan, <laughs> jumping out of airplanes and yeah. cra- crash, been in a few helicopter crashes. I broke my neck in Afghanistan. Like my body's. Been, been through been, some things. Been through some things and pretty banged up and um, and uh, and I started feeling like um, like pain, like the joint pain and stuff like that. Just felt like it's that's just life. Like, hey, that's, this is that's, this, this is normal. the yeah. I made the comment the other day. My shoulder, the eighty seven percent is the new hundred percent. Yeah, I, just I guess that's where we are. And then I just then I, uh, a couple months ago I did this carnivore diet, and uh, and I felt the inflammation. I started feeling the inflammation go away, and I'm like, man, there there is like a a path to healing and yeah and uh, and i have you know my own podcast that i was on i was i was had been talking to a lot of people about the stem cell and there's a ceo named eric's eric scofers that's the ceo of uh of of um bio accelerator down in columbia and mm-hmm. columbia and panama are two you know kind of leading places in stem cell technology and the ufc sends people down to bio accelerator in columbia and uh and, and i i just wanted to know like when i would interview eric scoffers i wasn't like promoting them I was just like, what is this? Why is it different? Sure. Why is stem cell different in the United States and the PRP and stem cell and umbilical stem cell technology from Colombia and what they're doing in Panama? And, and why is it not allowed in, in the United States? And what's what's the magic you know thing about why are people willing to pay so much money and, and mm-hmm. travel down there to do it? And, and I, the answers I start, we're, we're getting was like, it just really intrigued me. And so I spent like two years vetting it out. And then it wasn't until the carnivore diet and I actually found that relief, how much mm-hmm. relief I got from the lack of information. That I made the decision to go down there, and uh, and I went down uh, to Colombia, and they totally took care of me. Uh, in fact, uh, right before I left, uh, Usman um, mm-hmm. had Kamal. just left. Yeah, Kamal Usman had just left, and then right when I got right when I was leaving, uh, I think Bobby, Bobby Lashley showed up. So they have a really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris Cyborg's been down there. T.J. Dillashaw, Henry Cejudo goes all go to the bio accelerator down in in, in Colombia, and and uh, man. First of all, I'll say like from a level of like, it was like complete red carpet concierge treatment. Sure. Never seen that in the medical industry here in the United States. Right, right. You're spending like hours with the doctor, not seven minutes. Like you get oh, wow. ask questions and like get a, a neuroscientist like talking to me about what they're going to do to me. And, and, you know, I spent, spent the whole week down there and, um, and uh, I, I was expecting to walk away with like lightning bolts, like Bosch Rutten say, coming out of your fingertips. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that wasn't the case for me. It like knocked me in my butt. Oh, uh, really? Because, uh. I, I, you know, a couple of things. One, I got a lot of stem cells. I got 280 million stem cells oh, wow. put in me. All, you know, straight umbilical cord stem cells. I did my wrist, my elbow, my groin, my hip. I, I busted my groin right before we did the Afghan evacs last year. And I think we're going to talk about that. that Absolutely. Soon. But, uh, and as I got my groin done, my hip done, uh, both my shoulders, the scapulas and the, and the rotator cuffs. And then my, my neck where I have my neck break. And then they did a uh, intravenous, so they did like uh, 150 million stem cells through intravenous, and then they did 50 million stem cells, 
in my spinal fluid oh, uh, wow. for TBI for brain brain injuries from you know explosions in Afghanistan mm-hmm. and and then just getting punched and kicked in the head for yep. know, a lot of times. Well, that'll so, do it. Yeah. So my CAT scan shows a lot of dead spots <laughs> in my in my brain. So so um, so they actually they have a, the guys like a neuro neuroscientist doctor like and he. That before you put fluid into your spinal cord, you have to extract them. I didn't know oh. this. It's pretty pretty crazy. They have to extract the amount of fluid because if they put add some, it's overpressure and you. Yeah, it's a closed system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so they you know first they extract that spinal fluid and then they put that that fluid back in with the stem cells mm. in it. You you could watch it. I'll that sounds it. awesome. Yeah, it's the technology is super awesome. And, and watching it on the on the, uh, the what what they call it the. Uh, ultrasound yeah and so you see this eight inch needle going down your spinal cord and and it's just pretty crazy and then and then uh you know it's it's actually not a lot of pain but the neck that you go back and sleep six hours and the next day like i couldn't even touch i couldn't touch my knees like you're like like, oh i made a mistake i was so stiff (laughs) and so you had that stiffness and then um and so it was really stiff i was really tired felt like i had a flu and then i came home and then i had these like you know body aches and cramps which is actually of the proper response your body your right. immune systems like especially if you're healthy your immune system saying like hey uh, man hey, this is you know this something's going on here and it, and it really like triggered this response so like it knocked me on my butt for like a week but then after that i just had this like mental clarity come over me oh wow and this energy come uh, i felt like and 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 since then it's been a couple of weeks now i i have not felt uh one so groin hip elbow both wrists both shoulders. The only thing I felt a little bit in this wrist, which was a more recent injury, mm-hmm. but everything else I, I feel like zero, zero pain, zero inflammation, zero pain. That's awesome. And, uh, and that's, you know, it's not even supposed to, you know, I'm probably overselling it because it's not even, you shouldn't even get that result that fast, but right. I just don't, I don't have any, any, uh, inflammation or pain in it. And, uh, yeah. And then, yeah. and then, you know, a shout out to that company BioAccelerator because they, want to work with me to help get veterans in there at their cost pro bono, like get some veterans oh, wow. in there with spinal cord injuries and, and TBI. And there was one guy there that had been, he had, he was in a wheelchair and uh, he had broke his neck and was paralyzed from the waist down. And that was a sixth trip there. And uh, it, his first trip, he couldn't, he, he could only move the muscles in his face. And now he drives his wheelchair. He could drink water. No he, could, he could eat. He could use the bathroom. Uh, he could hold his baby, shook my hand. Like, uh, so, so, so he, when he started treatment, he couldn't move his arms. He could, no, he could oh, only like flinch the muscles in his face. And yeah. now he's holding his baby and shaking nice his hand. Yeah, yeah, That's it's, it's incredible. Yeah, it's a, it, it is a absolute disgusting crime that 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 this technology is not allowed. Yeah, in the it really that, it, it is it is absolutely. And, <laughs> I mean, and we can probably spend another five hours talking about <laughs> yeah. why, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. Well, I'm glad you're getting some relief out of out of that. I know, uh, man, just. You know, I've only I've trained for a little over eight years, almost nine years now, and you know I have that you know accelerated arthritis in the hands and all that stuff, and you're like, yeah, oh yeah, just gnarled up, yeah. and uh, it's it, so yeah, I get it, and that's that's great. Uh, what's interesting though, and you know, getting now into sort of the the nonprofit space, you know, when, when did you decide, hey man, something needs to be done for um for veterans that are suffering from ptsd and obviously you had challenges with it mm-hmm. uh and, and major challenges with it yeah and uh and help me help me walk through the process of, of like man something needs to be done here and then what made you decide i'm the one that's going to do it yeah well so at the time you know i came back from afghanistan diagnosed with ptsd 
that three years of starting that gym and having the success of thousand students and winning mm-hmm. one legacy belt. I think Fight Matrix had me at the rate number six as a flyweight, sure. number, number 22 as a bantamweight. So, you know, a lot of success outwardly, mm-hmm. but man, behind the behind the scenes, my life was crashing yeah. and uh, ended up separated from my family, uh, facing a divorce and, and attempted to take my life. And, mm-hmm. you know, with the, the suicide rate is at the times 23 a day and so I almost became a veteran suicide statistic and uh, some amazing people came around me and helped me one was my, my wife Kathy um, this mentor local guy here uh, at the time he was a small business owner elder on call at who was happened to be on call at the church my wife was going to his name is Steve Toth he's a Texas state legislator now uh, in the area our where we are now and mm-hmm. I guess where you live too yep yeah so uh, you know, amazing guy and so he stepped into my life and began to mentoring me uh, led me in a relationship with Christ. I became a Christian, and uh, and so I had this restoration of my faith, and uh, and 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 it's a pretty uh, radical change happened in my life, and uh, and I became very intentional about getting healthy again and getting well, and making better decisions in response sure. to things I dealt with. You know, I, I mean, some bad things that happened to me. I lost 15 friends yeah. over over those you know deployments, um, even beyond before the military. Just my childhood, different things. I mm-hmm. had a lot of stuff that was valid, but uh, that to deal with but the way i was responding was 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 not the right way right sure. so i kind of came to this realization like yeah some bad things happened to me but the reason i ended up sitting in the closet with a pistol in my hand trying to take my life wasn't because of those things it was because of choices i had made in response to those things and so i made a pretty radical decision that i was going to you know pull my life together and, and that's that's uh you know when steve tapped in and and uh, that deliberate intentional living and pulling my life together you know, brought restoration to my family uh in, in my own brokenness and the way i dealt with ptsd and gave me hope again and ultimately it, it ignited a purpose inside of me and that purpose mm-hmm. really manifested in this kind of deep burden that I, ble- I believe god put in my heart to help others that were struggling like me and uh i kind of looked at my life and said man i i got i got the ability to broadcast this message to p- other people that are hurting i have a i have a platform as an athlete mm-hmm. i have a lot of influence in the military community because of the special operations background i had and people will listen to me i knew a lot of people still and uh and I had this, it was just this moment in my life where I felt like, you know, I was just dying of cancer and then somebody gave me the cure mm-hmm. and I had a megaphone to be able to shout out the cure. Yeah. Like I couldn't keep it to myself. I had to, uh, share it. I had to share it. And, uh, so I made a decision to kind of just walk away from the life that I had and, and to pay that for, pay that what was done for me forward to others. And that was a pretty radical decision I made, you know, at the height of my MMA yeah. opportunity, I'm at the prime age to, to do, uh, I, you know, I probably could have, been, I felt like I could have been in that first four UFC flyweights. No one had, I'd never lost yeah, a flyweight. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and at that time, the flyweight division in the UFC was kind of fledgling. Like I, it was, it, it wasn't deep at all. No. Uh, I mean, yeah, it was, that was right at the four-man tournament. I, I, I truly believe like there wasn't anybody in the world that could beat me at 125 pounds. And I still believe that it was, at that time, I would have ran through anybody. I felt like I was cheating when I fought at 125 pounds. Like, <laughs> well, no one knew jiu-jitsu like you, so that, yeah. that, that helps. So, for like, sure. I mean, like, any, any, I mean, it might sound arrogant, but, like, Demetrius Johnson, like, uh, Ian McCall, like, all those guys, I'm like, I just felt like no, like, no problem. So, like, I had this, and you, every fighter should feel that way, by the way. Sure, that's right, that's right. Fighting. I was going to say, you <laughs> never hear a fighter go, ah, man, I hope, I yeah. hope it goes my way, honestly. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that that's just, so I was in this moment where I believed in myself, I had the opportunity, I had this thousand students in my school, like, but I had this opportunity to, to just do something bigger than that. Sure. And, uh, and, and realizing that all these guys from the military community at the time were, were killing themselves, 
uh, 23 a day at the time, 80% divorce rate. It's kind of like you sit back and say, yeah. someone's got to do something about this. You know, why not me? Sure. And so I, I knew if I would have did it while I had the gym and everything, it would have been like a dabbling and I had this security net. So I chose to walk away from that gym and everything and to go off and start Mighty Oaks and, and just go to step out on, on blind faith and, and sure. do it. And that was 2012, right, when, when you founded Mighty Oaks? 2011. 11, okay. Yeah, yeah. What, uh, what was your wife's response when you were like, hey, I know things are going pretty good. I'm going to not do that anymore and do yeah. this. Well, she was, I mean, she's a very strong like Christian woman, mm -hmm. and uh, she had a really strong faith. And so um, me saying and her believing that I really felt like God was burning my heart to do this, she was on board at first. Yeah. But then the reality of selling our home, sure, liquidating everything we own to start this nonprofit. We're going to move to Colorado because that's where I felt a call to do it. And, right. and, and we don't even know how we're going to buy groceries, much to start a nonprofit. Like that became scary to her, and she sure. had this, she had this kind of own personal moment. And it would be a long story to go into it, but she had this moment, personal moment with with a uh, where I believe God revealed some things to her that she was like came to her own conclusion that she was on board too. Yeah, that's so the right both, thing. Yeah, we just both like had this kind of blind faith and, and we had no idea what was going to happen or how we were going to do it. We just knew we were supposed to do it and we were just obedient to that 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 calling that we had inside of us. And it was 12 years ago. Um, uh, it's, it's been an amazing 12 years to watch um, how things have happened and sure. what I believe to, to believe to be a defining miraculous way uh, from a business standpoint that just kind of divide, def, defies all like business sense sure. to end up where we, where we are right now. And, and uh, I'm sure you keep stats on it. How many veterans have you uh, enrolled in the Mighty Oaks program and helped? So over the last 12 years, we've uh, in our resiliency program, uh, which is where we go to bases around the world and speak to active duty troops. Mm -hmm. I've spoken to 400,000 active wow. duty troops uh, in, in, in those resiliency programs that we do. Uh, I've written several books, and one of them is called The Path to Resiliency. Um, which is about spiritual resiliency. We've given about uh, given away about 300,000 copies of those to the troops. We have a recovery program called a legacy program, and we have five ranches around the country. Mm -hmm. And so active duty service members will go there on orders for five days, or military veterans will go there, first responders or spouses of those. And we pay for everything, including their travel. It's about $5 million a year in programming. Wow. And, uh, and so um, in the last 12 years, we've had 4,500 graduates from that program. And then, uh, and then about... 500 of those have become instructors to do that in their own communities that we've trained to do that. And uh, But even though we've done 4,500 over 12 years, now we're at the point we're doing 1,000 per year oh, wow. uh, now. So we've really kind of amplified our, yeah, yeah. Yeah, our, our capacity and ability uh, just through building our infrastructure. And uh, and then uh, on, the, on the policy side, that's uh, kind of a third thing, third of th three or four things we do because of, we had so many successes in, in faith-based programs. Uh, I was appointed as the chairman of the White House's faith-based coalition and oh, wow. change veterans policy to get faith-based programs back as an option to the, the veterans community. Because in 2009, it was an executive order signed by President Obama to reallocate faith-based program funding to clinical. And it was a massive catastrophe. Uh, sure. su suicide rate spiked about spiked from 16 to 23 a day after after that, uh, in, mm. in two years after that. So I was and it's really not gotten, uh, it's at 22 now, right? Uh, right now the, the, re the current report is actually 17. Oh, wow. That's right. But uh, th it's good, but it, but we, but there's data that's coming out now to show that that's actually at about 44, um, which we always knew there was missing data. Oh, wow. There was only about 50%. So 
that's the report says 17, but it's actually probably about in, in the 40s. One is too many. Absolutely. So, uh, so it doesn't really matter what the number is to me. But, but, uh, but who knows what? The, and then they they're not reporting a lot of things. Like the National Suicide Hotline is one thing that we do know. In the last two years, that's went up one thousand percent. Oh man! In two years, uh, you know, COVID has yeah. Just cor- so it happens to correlate with COVID, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, you know, we've when President Obama took that out we i was really an advocate for putting that back in mm-hmm. regardless of who's in the white house and, uh, and uh, at the time president trump was running as a candidate and i had a chance to ask him any question i wanted i was put before him as a veteran and i asked him if he became president would he overturn this and that uh, was my one question i could ask him that's the question i asked and he, he said yes and i was able to follow up on that and, and uh be on the va transition team and ultimately be on that as the chairman of the white house's faith-based coalition and and get him to sign that executive order and change some policy and uh and uh, we got that back for the veterans community oh, that's so, amazing that's awesome and then, uh, and then the fourth thing we do is a uh, is a uh, our international program and that's mm-hmm. where we go to ally partners around the world and uh we've been all over the world to different allies and bringing the same programs we have for u.s troops uh making it available to them and yeah. cu- currently yeah. I, I didn't have any idea that actually um active duty would end up being sent to the ranches uh, on orders to mm-hmm. and that's awesome how did you end up securing that uh, partnership relationships sure uh, everything we've done over the last 12 years has been relationships uh, so I, I had a sergeant major that was in charge of the marine corps wounded war battalion at the time and we were only dealing with veterans and as we were dealing with veterans we we're just like and this is early on this is like two years into mighty oaks i'm like man looking at these guys and what they're dealing with if we could catch them when they're transitioning out mm-hmm because you know at the time the suicide rate was only one a day on active duty but when they were getting out there was another 20 plus a day like that means there's a pro- we got to catch them before and so the marine corps wounded warrior battalion was where they were transitioning and so i went to the sergeant major and i said um hey will you just trust me give me send me two marines send mm-hmm. me, and, and just trust me with it and so he went out on a limb and, and sent two marines to us on active duty actually sent three marines and a and a and a, and a navy corpsman uh it's a and uh and it was you know, they were phenomenally impacted. Wow. Went back, and then they sent more and sent more, and then we went to other branches of service and said, hey, the Marine Corps is doing this. Can you send some of your guys? And then that, you know, uh, now we have uh, all four branches have sent people to us on, on official orders, and I'd say out of that 4,500 graduates we've had, about half of those have been uh, from active duty orders. Man, that's great. And uh, and then our resiliency program came from that when we're saying, hey, let's not get them into transitioning. Let's go all the way to the beginning mm-hmm. and take the same principles we're helping people recover with and tell them in the front end, if you have these principles and fundamental things in your life in the front end, then you can prevent some of these problems. And that's our resiliency program is you know, pre- more pre- preventiveness. Right. So, so you're saying you know, we'll instill this in you so that throughout your career you can rely on these and, and hopefully it you know, curbs yeah. that, right? Yeah, the military. The military has always had these pillars of resiliency. When I was, and it was, they keep adding them, right? It was, it was mind, body, spirit. It was three pillars, and then there's four: mind, body, spirit, social. And they keep they're adding more and more now. But really, these four essential pillars. Like if you you have to be to be a effective warrior and do your job well, and then walk away from it after you have to be mentally tough. You mm-hmm. have to know your job, and you have to believe in yourself, and you have to be mentally tough. Uh, the physical pillar is you have to be physically tough, right? You have to, to be in the military and do the job, difficult job. You have to be physically healthy and in shape. Uh, socially, you need to surround yourself with the right people. You can't always pick who you work with, but right. you can pick who you listen to and let influence you. Right. And that fourth pillar is a spiritual foundation. You have to believe in something bigger than yourself. You know, For me, I'm a Christian, my relationship with God, but you should have those uh, 
all four of those pillars. And uh, so one of the we were able to go in at Mighty Oaks in the beginning. And like this weekend, I'll be at Marine Corps Boot Camp in Paris Island. Oh, wow. And I'll speak to several thousand of those kids and say, hey, you obviously joined the Marine Corps because you want to be a warrior. A warrior's life means being ready and being resilient. Uh, and the, military, the Marine Corps is teaching you about these four pillars of resiliency. On a PowerPoint, so let me teach you what they actually mean. Let, right. let me talk to you about what it means to be mentally tough and, and, and physically tough and, and socially listening to the right people and, and, and having a strong spiritual foundation, how that can prepare, prepare you, truly prepare you to what you're about to endure as, as a Marine. And uh, as you go and defend our nation and, and defend people around the world who can't defend themselves and see things and do things that you were never created or meant to see or do, uh, those things that cause people to wind up in a place of veteran suicide or lead them to divorce, let's prepare you now by having a strong foundation. And so, you know, that's that I put a lot of effort into that. That's what we spoke in the 400,000 active duty troops in that area. And we get so many requests from bases around the world to go and speak to the troops because especially right now, because morale so low and, mm -hmm. you know, guys are just struggling with life. And, uh, and so we were able to go in and talk to them. Man, that's amazing. And, and it's so rewarding and, and obviously something that's so close to your, your heart and, and, you know, a passion for you. And, and I think that's one of the things that, probably has led to the success of, of Mighty Oaks and, and, you know, probably, uh, you know, eliminating the, you know, the concern of, you know, are we doing the right thing? You know, something that is passionate and you can be passionate about and, and hang your hat on the end, end of the day that, man, I'm helping people. We're, we're really impacting lives positively. Yeah. And so is in, so that's a nonprofit. And mm -hmm. so then you decide, man, we we fast forward through the nonprofit stuff, and you you found an, another co-found another uh, nonprofit, Save Our Allies. Yeah, yeah. And when did you found that? Well, during Afghanistan withdrawals, I uh, you know a lot of a lot of Afghanistan veterans were like, "This is not yeah, this the is right not thing cool. to do." Yeah, it's not cool. It's not the right thing to do. It's not the right thing to do for America. It's not the right thing to do for the the, the security of the world. Um, and it's definitely not the right thing to do for the Americans, our Americans in Afghanistan, and our allies. Like. Right. This is uh, political, and uh, you know, and people are going to die, and our world's going to be less safe because of it. And so, I, I selfishly responded to helping my friend because mm -hmm. those eight deployments that I originally did, because of my job in JSOC, I was an AFO, Advanced Force Operator, and and I was essentially working in a singleton capacity by myself. And I was assigned an interpreter who ultimately ended up being my teammate and my friend Aziz. He did mm -hmm. all eight of those deployments with me. We ran around the mountains of Afghanistan and, and Pakistan together, and you know, essentially, our job was to put our assaulters on target to capture or kill the you know worst bad guys in the battlefield at that time. Sure. And uh, and so, you know, us when you spend time with people twenty four seven like that, you become very close. And you know, Aziz not only became my friend, but someone that would say saved my life, particularly on three occasions, but probably every day, like. Don't walk there. Don't talk yeah, to the person. Right. Don't eat that. If you speak right now, they're going to kill us. Like, yeah. I mean, he was – so he looked out for me and put himself in danger for me. On, we wasn't out operating. I didn't go to base, and he went back home. I went to his house. I lived in his home. I sure. seen his oldest kids, Mashud and Mashuda, be born and, and played soccer with his nieces and nephews. So he's like family to me. And we had tried for six years to get him and his wife and six, his six kids on a special immigrant visa to come to America because he has filled this contract. He had done like 15 years of special operations. Oh, wow. And uh, the contract that the United States offered these interpreters, 80,000 of them, by the way, uh, with the contract that we offered them was they fulfilled their contract to serve in the United States military, and it's a nine-month process for them to get to the United States. This guy who had all this experience had been six years uh, uh, in that process. It's a bro very broken system, 
And I, I know a lot of people in Congress and Senate, and I have a lot of close friends in government, and no one can make this happen. And I think it was intentionally set up to, to lie and betray uh, our allies, Man. which is not good. We've, we have a history, America has a history of doing this. It's, you know, how do, we, how do people trust us in future wars if we can't keep our word? Sure. <laughs> and so as, we're, as this withdrawal was happening, I'm like, I have to go get my friend. And, uh, and uh, I knew our, um, a military should be able to do it, but they wouldn't be allowed to. Our government intelligence agencies and friends that have in the CIA and stuff like that, they were like – they had their interpreters there. And they are like, man, I want to get my interpreter. They were, mm-hmm. Because of their job, they couldn't. I know a guy that's worked his whole life, Green Beret, Delta Force, CIA ground branch as a, as a paramilitary officer and, and resigned his whole career. Everything he worked for his life resigned so that he could participate and go and help. Because uh, he wasn't allowed to in, the, in that capacity, so people they wanted our service members wanted to go and help, but they couldn't. So I, I decided I'm going to put a small team together uh, of people, uh, all special operations veterans that I knew very well, trusted, had the experience to do this, and we put this 12 man team together to go get Aziz. And as we're planning to do it, uh, one of the guys says, "Hey, that's that's like 3,500 orphans in this in this camp that are going to be left there. Let's go get them too." And we kind of paused for a second and said, "Man, we have we have." like over a century of like incredible like special operations right. experience in this room we all have the passion the ability to do this we have networks and resources like we could help a lot of people let's help let's let's help as many americans women children that are vulnerable uh interpreters and their families christians that be killed for their faith like let's help as many people as we can and so after that decision was made the only way i know how to describe it was just completely like miraculous because Every door that should have been closed was open for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I mean, um, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley's office, mm-hmm. let us gave us permission to land on an airport and start evacuating people. The, uh, the, the um, United Arab Emirates, the royal family, we called them and said, hey, will you help? Uh, we need a place to bring these people to because they won't have visas. Like, mm-hmm. we can't human traffic people out. Like, we're, we need a humanitarian center to bring them to. They said, yes, you could use our humanitarian center. Not only that, we're going to give you doctors and food and take care of them, but you can need some planes, too. We're going to give you a C-17 plane, which is a big military plane sure, sure. and pilots. Like, and, uh, and, and, and then I got a call from, from Glenn Beck, and Glenn Beck's, you know, a longtime friend of mine and been supportive of Mighty Oaks. And he said, I just, I just went in the air and, and raised money because I wanted to do something, and I just raised $21 million and – I don't have a. I'm not rescuing people. Like, what? Are you guys doing anything? I'm like, yeah. In fact, we are. Yeah. And so I subscribed to the Blaze, and I remember when that was going on. Yeah, he was he raising was, money. I was like, oh, this is amazing. He ended up raising like forty something million dollars, and Golly. and uh, those planes, those planes were like eight hundred thousand dollars a piece, and so I, so I just worked with his guy Rudy Atala, and they didn't give us money, but they just paid the bill on, on the planes for us, and so within within the first ten days there, it, the first day we got Aziz and his family. Uh, we got about 180 people. The next day, we got like 800. The next day, like 1,000. It was all a blur because if we felt like we stopped for like five minutes or even 30 seconds to sleep. Right. Like somebody's – literally somebody's going to die. Yeah. yeah. It was that fast. And, and um, we had our ground team going outside the wire, getting people. It was all coordinated. Everybody we brought out, by the way, was vetted. Uh, our list was vetted. And then they went to Abu Dhabi where the State Department moved. So we didn't bring anybody unvetted to the United States. Mm-hmm. Our, our government did. Tens of thousands. Sure. Uh, but uh, everybody we brought was had to be vetted because we're not the State Department, right? And so, um, so we had an amazing team doing that process, running our manifest by the Joint Chiefs. It was just incredible how everything went perfect. Any any one of those things would went wrong, and we would have 
you know, had people killed or it wouldn't have been successful, it would have been shut down, but everything just went perfect. And at the end of that 10, first 10 days, when the Abigates blew up and, and 13 of our service members were killed and they started welding those gates shut, um, we didn't know how many people we had got out in that 10 days, but we, but we ultimately tallied it up and we had got 12,000 people out. Wow. Um, and we made a decision in that moment that we couldn't leave. The U.S. military was leaving. The troops were not wanting to leave. It was it was embarrassing mm-hmm. for them. So, I, I mean, watching them evacuate our embassy, pull down our flag, and, and evacuate the embassy like, like Saigon. It was it was, it was terrible. And, uh, and you know, our troops were one of the things. Our, our troops were forced to clean the airport for the Taliban, clean the toilets, and uh, for the Tal- it was it was just so disgusting. We were so mad. But one of the things that we knew is we couldn't leave because. The, the news was saying, and the White House was saying, there was 100 Americans there. Yeah. And uh, and I knew, being on the ground, that there were thousands of Americans right. still there. And uh, 100 or 1,000, it doesn't matter. Like, the United States has a promise to American people that we won't leave you behind. Not not one person. And uh, the world I come from in special operations is like, literally, we will scorch the earth around an American to get them out, even if we know we're going to lose people. Even that idiot joe Burdall, who's a traitor like we lost people to go to go get him right. because he's an american and uh you know that's just w- the promise that the united states government has to the american people so i could not consciously leave and our team our team couldn't either we chose to stay we got a uh, we were flying people out of remote airports through a coalition of a lot of other nonprofits that worked with us some, some great nonprofits, not just ours and uh we got about another five thousand people out when that dried up we chose to uh to help build evacuation routes through rat lines across the border. Um, all the people had fled to a place called the Panjir Valley, mm-hmm. and uh, the resistance was there. To cross out of there into Tajikistan was this 25,000-foot mountain peaks. The Taliban was everywhere blocking that path out. Uh, so treacherous terrain, the enemy. Then there's the Panjir River, which is a Category 5 rapids river that's ice melt. So it's cold. It's crazy water. Uh, and then on the other side of that is not only the Tajikistan military, but the Chinese and Russian militaries mm-hmm. were there. So uh, it's like impossible for them to figure out how to get out unless someone went on the other side and came across and built routes out. And that's kind of one of the things that reconnaissance Marines do. Uh, so um, myself and a, a, a Marine named Staff Sergeant Dennis Price, who the Marine Corps allowed to come on leave to do humanitarian work, not knowing exactly what we were going to be doing, but they, they cut him loose. And uh, and he came came with me, and we went into Tajikistan, and literally for ten days, every every day we we did about ninety miles of border reconnaissance, and every night we would swim across into Afghanistan, and build routes out for those people, and, and able to provide information for them to safely mm-hmm. safely evacuate Afghanistan, and uh, and I mean, you know, like literally within these moments, we were like thirty yards away from the Taliban, and and just getting in there and building those routes out to make sure they could safely get out, and. And uh, I don't know. I don't know how many people got out through that, but that information was given to the right people, and including some people in our own government who wanted that information but couldn't get it themselves. Hmm. And so, yeah, we. Uh, and that's kind of how it ended for us in Afghanistan. And now we're in Ukraine, yep. doing the same thing in Ukraine. Uh, we rescued uh, myself and you know one of the guys that was in Afghanistan with us who kind of led the ground effort and uh, leading our uh, ground effort in. Ukraine, uh, Sea Spray, we call him, is, is kind of his nickname that we call him. And, uh, you know, we, we were able to rescue Benjamin Hall, the Fox News reporter. Mm-hmm. I personally drove out Pierre, the cameraman, 25-year cameraman from Fox News, his body, um, to get him back safely to his wife, Michelle, who wanted, wanted her husband. Sure. And then we've, we've rescued a lot of people, and now we're bringing our Mighty Oaks team out to the front lines and 
providing uh, resources, supplies, training, and uh, and ultimately, uh, our biggest thing is our, our spiritual resiliency program for those troops because they're mentally and spiritually like for the Ukrainian troops. For the Ukrainian troops, yeah, yeah they're they're hurting, and uh, oh, I mean, yeah. and they they're just trying to defend their homes and their families and and their freedom. And most of them aren't professional soldiers; they're just you know normal everyday people that are just defending their homes and families. Yeah. And, so uh, one of the themes that uh, as as we go through all of the things that you've done, uh, and first of all. It, amazing all of it and and i know that uh, you know you're you're very humble about all of that uh, but it, you have no reason to be it's amazing it, it truly is and i know there are a lot of people that you know help that be successful oh yeah that's not me it's just so many sure. people yeah. you know, one of the interesting things though even going back to when you were um when you were a uh, a gym owner mm-hmm. and a fighter and then now at mighty oaks and save our allies you're you founded all of these things, but you you are also actively doing the work. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you balance that as a founder, as an owner, a president, CEO, whatever you want to call it? How do you balance that activity and still accomplish the administrative tasks associated with running an organization? Because that doesn't not exist. Yeah, uh, and, and those things have to be taken care of. How do you do that? How do you as a as a person? How do you say I'm going to be tactically involved uh boots on the ground but at the same time get the administrative stuff sorted out as well yeah i, th- I think one of the things that it, it's probably one of the the main lessons that i've learned from my experience in life and i don't think i ever intentionally did it this way but look backwards and, I, and i've always done it the, the way all those things you talked about a list of different things i've done i've always had the same uh principle and i've always surrounded myself by, the, by really good people sure and uh you know as a as a leader, a young leader, uh, I I was a very prematurely became a, a recon team leader at at 19 years old, <laughs> and, you know, at, which is not not normal. And uh, and I, I just always learned, you know, I think the blessing by being a 19 year old and knowing that I got like 25 year old men in my team is like the being humble enough to realize I can't do everything. And there's other people on my team that are going to be better than me at stuff. And you put the right people in the right place and not, not be so prideful that I want to control everything. And I learned that at a very young age. And through, so as I transitioned from that to business, I've always, I've never had the pride to be so close hold to things to say, this is mine. First of all, like everything I've done when you're, when you have a life of service or running a business, you, I think one of the first things you have to understand is it's not about you. Like sure. if you run a business for you, then you're never going to be successful. If you run a, a gym to, to help make people's lives better, to make them healthier, to make them more confident, to make them able to defend themselves, if, if it's about them, then you're going to have a more successful business. In Mighty Oaks, it's not about, you know, I got 500,000 people on my, on my Instagram. I, I really don't care about that that platform's a tool for me to help people i don't care right. about more followers on my instagram i care about helping more people and so uh, always putting people before yourself is is a what you'll find the result of that is you're going to actually be the one that's, that's elevated from it even though you, you might not want to be you are you can become the most blessed by helping other people and i've always made my life about uh and i say this like with honesty and real humility like i've always tried to make my life about other people uh i just have a servant's heart i love serving people i love when you come over to my house i'm gonna Want to give you food? I'm, you know, I'm kind of Louisiana what time, hospitality. What time should I be there? <laughs> yeah, I'm actually getting served tonight. Somebody's taking me out to dinner tonight. <laughs> that's just who I am. Like, uh, if you come over, like, I just want to serve. Like, that's sure. that, it, from the military to like, I just kind of my personality. So, like, it. I think people, we're all selfish to an extent, but in business, you need to 
whether it's nonprofit or for profit, just realize whatever your goal is, whatever your mission statement is, it's not about you. And uh, that's always been a big thing for me. And then go back to that first thing, s- surround yourself with the right people. Sure. Don't be so prideful that you're going to hang on. How was I able to run a $5 million a year operation at Mighty Oaks? That Save Our Allies effort and starting Save Our Allies, we, that was a $31 million project that we did to save those 17,000 people. And, and, how, you st- and you stood that up how quickly? And I mean, it had to be real quick. Yeah, like, uh, I mean, the whole, the ten, I mean, 10 days for the Afghanistan thing. I yep. mean, we stood, we stood it up like two weeks before that. Yep. And then, uh, and then the whole thing, the whole effort was about three months long. Yeah. So we did, we went through about $31 million in three months. I mean, uh, so, and then Ukraine, the reason I'm able to go out there and, and, and participate and do these things and lead from the front is because I built a really good infrastructure of amazing people and surrounded myself with the best people by networking and trusting other people with things. I mean, I have the most incredible staff um, from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my, my board of directors are like people that I trust. Or I put people in place in my board of directors that I trust are going to hold me accountable to the mission I believe God's put on my heart. Not people that are going to tell me what I want to hear. Sure. People that are going to tell me what I need to hear. My board of advisors are people like a sergeant major of the Marine Corps and a commandant of the Marine Corps, congressmen and, and, biz- and business owners that are own, you know, that have like billion dollar businesses and people that I've just networked with and just have real authentic relationships with it that trust me because of, you know, by, by just being, you know, a person that does what they say they're going to do, like, and have these relationships with people. And then from my, all the way down to my staff, like our team leaders and our team, like these are people that I could, you know, I, I could trust to go out and run these programs and, and, and then say, Hey, he's not doing exactly the way I'd want to do it, but I'm not there. I need to be over here. Right. Right. right? And, uh, and, you know, there's uh, another rule in business that you never do anything. You never do anything that someone else could do. Uh, and, and so, as soon as you have a something, even though you like doing that part of your business, if someone else could do it, then then you need to have someone else doing it. And you need to be doing something that someone else can't do. So I'm always, and this kind of comes from the special operations community. Uh, what makes special operations special? They do things other people can't do. Sure. In, in Afghanistan, we rescued seventeen thousand people. In Ukraine, we rescued like three hundred people. Why didn't we rescue seventeen thousand people in Ukraine? Because everybody's driving their cars across the border and opening the door and right. filling it up. Everybody right. could do that. I want to do what people can't do. Yeah. I want to go and, and get ben, Benjamin Hall when he's in the middle of Kiev when it's under attack and, and the United States military and every and everyone can't go get him. Like yeah. I could do that. And so it's one person, but I could, I could do that. I could I could get to the very front line and go two hours past the border in the Russian territory and occup- and identify mass grave sites. Like I could do that. Not everybody could do that. Other people could drive the bus across the, the border and open their doors. Right. So you always do things that other people can't do. In, a, in an everyday business environment uh, at Mighty Oaks, I, I could go and teach a great class at the program, but I have a whole staff of 65 other guys that could do it. Sure. So why am I going to do that? Uh, so – I think in business, a lot of times we want to be in control of everything, and, yeah. and, and there's a lot of people that could do those things. And and if we put our product aside, they could probably do them better than us. <laughs> so, yeah, well, and so. that's I think that's a great lesson actually, uh, and it's the first time I've actually heard it put that way. That once you identify this is a need in the business and it's something that I can do, even if I like doing it, mm-hmm. if someone else can do that more effectively, it frees you up to. Yeah, drive the business the direction it needs to go. That's I think that's fantastic. What of all of the things that you've done, and I want to get into the the new book that's coming out in uh, January, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but of all of the things before we get there, of all of the things that you've done, and it, and it's for me to sit and listen to, it's just amazing. Uh, what are you the most proud of? Man, honestly, 
it may sound like me trying to say the right answer, but but it truly is my, my family. Like, it is uh, the right answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's my fa- it's my family. Like a, uh, I I grew up in a very dysfunctional home with, uh, and uh, I had I had the the opposite example of what a father should be, and 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 you know we just I just didn't grow up with it, and I always desired to be to be like one day I want to have a want to sit around a Christmas tree, which sounds stupid, and have. You know, my wife and my my kids and grandkids. That's what I that's what I wanted in my life. I didn't want to to make. I didn't want to be a billionaire. I didn't want to have a big sure. it, like a, a big business or anything. I want to be able to sit around a Christmas tree with a wife and kids and grandkids. That's what I wanted, and uh, and and I have that right now. You know, I just my third grandkids on the way. Uh, I have a great relationship with all three of my kids. But my all three of my kids are married. They're in good places in their life. We have great relationships. Um, we. Me and my sons work together. They both served in the Marines. They work at Mighty Oaks now. We work together. We travel together. We have hobbies together. They both do jujitsu. Sure. Uh, my oldest son and I skydive together. Like, like that's just for me. That's the, what I'm most proud of is, is having been able to have a family that's intact and has good, good, healthy relationship. And and honestly, I, 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 it sounds cliche, and it's like, like I said, it sounds like I'm saying the right answer. But if I didn't have that, I wouldn't be able to do the other things I do. Yeah, I was going to say that. Actually. If I didn't have that foundation, I wouldn't be able to have the other things I do. It gives me the it gives me the platform to do that. So I have to be, you know, as a like wise investor of my time and energy and resources, I have to f- focus on that to be able to do the, the other things. So yeah, that makes sense. And and you know, like you know, my wife's here with me today. She's hiding and, and doesn't want to be on, on camera <laughs> or mic. But uh, it's the same deal. And you know, not near to the extent that you're talking about. But if I didn't have the support uh, from her. Uh, to, to do things like this or even in in my actual job you know it'd be almost impossible for me to get it done yeah so I, mean, I agree i mean trust me like my wife's been through eight deployments uh and i hadn't always been the best husband so i'm not saying this to say that i've been the best husband i've been a terrible husband if people take the time to go back and look at my story i've been a terrible husband at times and and uh you know not a, a great person coming coming off the ptsd and dealing with some of the things i dealt with and so my wife had seen the bad side of that. Now I'm going to go back to Afghanistan and, and help evacuate people. Right. Now that that's done, I'm going to go and we're going to fly into Tajikistan by ourselves and, and travel 11 hours through the mountains to go without unarmed, past the Chinese and the Russians and the Taliban to go help people. My wife's like dropping me off at the airport. And that was not a good conversation. She's like, why are you going to do this? Like, what right. do you have to prove? And I'm like, man, I, I want our military to go. They can't like, but I can like, why would I have to? And, she, and she's like, you don't have to. <laughs> and I'm like, what if it was? What if it was our daughter sure. that was going to be raped? What if it was our sons and, and and our family? Like, wouldn't we be praying someone would come help us? And uh, and 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 she got it. And I mean, to have like a family that would support you to go do something like that, even though they don't want to, you know, is yeah. It's also, not, it didn't just happen. Like it, it's it, it's not like you're saying I need to go to the store and get some milk. I mean, you're going yeah. into some pretty violent places. So it, it's yeah. it is remarkable. Uh, and one of the things that uh, that struck me, and I want to get it kind of into the the Saving Aziz book, is uh, I watched the the movie on Amazon Prime. Uh, Send me. It's yeah. amazing. Nick Palmashano put it together for uh, us. Amazing. And I remember one of the one of the things that stuck out to me in that movie was. Uh, at the the comment I can't remember who it was it might have been Nick actually but they were saying that you know the, the special forces community was texting back and forth and, and they were like what are we going to what are we going to do and the the decision was well are we going to sit here and text about it or are we going to go fix it yeah. and uh, and then that was that was the the birth of well we're going to go fix it so yeah. uh, and, and so so 
I want to I want to give you a chance to talk about saving Aziz in the book and and Aziz is now here in Texas and working for Mighty Oaks and yep. uh, and all of that and and that's amazing we love that he's here. Um, tell me about the book and and tell me you know in open form whatever you want to say about it and 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 promote it. Yeah, I'll say about the book. But I want to say one more thing about like so when you said Nick like so it was crazy because the four of us that really were well, the foundation of it was Sarah Verardo. Nick Pomachano, Tim, and myself. And the way that started was uh, Sarah Verardo and I, she runs, I run Mighty Oaks, she runs the Independence Fund. We had met together uh, doing some policy work in D.C. And she was wanting to help uh, get some interpreters out. I was wanting to get Aziz out. We kind of came together. And she texts Nick, uh, hey, do you want to go to Afghanistan? And I'm on the phone with Tim Kennedy because he's one of the people I called Mm -hmm. right away uh, because I really trust Tim. I've been knowing him a long time. And, and, uh, hey, do you want to go? get Aziz because we'd never been talking about it. Let's go get Aziz. And they're in a car together at the same time. Him uh, and Tim? Him and Tim. Oh, well, wow. So both of us hit them up at the same time. And so they're like, and so within hours, you know, we brought the plane ticket and going and, you know, they were, they were just incredible there. And, you know, along the way, there's been some incredible uh, people that come along. But I want to say something to say the heart of all those people is a, a sea spray who, who I mentioned earlier, you know, special, special forces guy and one of the premier government intelligence agencies just probably one of the most qualified guys on our team to do particularly uh, precision rescue operations. Not probably, he was the most qualified guy. And I was together with him. We were, we've been doing everything. I did 10 trips to Ukraine uh, since February, since the invasion. And, um, and he's been with me every time. And, and we were getting interviewed and, and, um, and just really just gives a heart of everybody that was involved. He was asked in an interview, a question that we always been asked, you know, why are you, why are you doing this? Right. Like, why are you helping these people? You don't know these people. Uh, you could you could die like and you don't even know these yeah. people. This isn't your country. Why are you doing this? And and he said, kind of what we always say is because it's the right thing to do. And right. it is the right it's the right thing to do to help people that can't help themselves. And if you can, you should. And uh and then she asked the reporter asked another question that I hadn't heard asked before. And it, this is his answer. She said um she said is it worth it? And he said it it doesn't have to be. Oh, that's a great answer. Yeah. And uh, I think that's the heart of everybody that was involved in that. Um, you know, sometimes we like kind of want to put things as, you know, not do things because we're on a scale of like, is it worth it or not? What's our return on it? You know, it, it, it doesn't always have to be. When doing the right thing, you know, it doesn't always have to be worth it. Yeah, sometimes the ROI doesn't exactly work out when it's the right thing and that's, that's okay. Right. That's okay, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's the heart of a, that whole effort. And so, you know, I, I think we captured it in this book, uh, you know, Saving Aziz. Uh, I, you know, I was kind of torn at like a – not torn because I was like, I have to tell this story, but you know, and how to tell it. There was so many different ways to tell it. And so I just went chronologically, like me and Aziz's relationship since 2003, when we first met and started working together, we were both young in special operations and he sure. was my interpreter. And so it's really just our, our, our relationship from when we met to working together to how, why my, my, my relationship with him was so important to go get him. And then ultimately the subtitle is saving Aziz, how a mission to help one became a calling to save thousands. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, it was because of his heart. We were, we were sitting in the Abu Dhabi humanitarian center and, and I'm, I'm, I'm sitting with him and his wife and kids. And I just met him, met him for the first time, uh, you know, after the rescue and met up, I met, not met him, met up with him and we hugged and we we're both crying and his kids could run up to me and they're calling me uncle Chad. Cause they call me uncle Chad and I'm crying and, and then I'm looking around these thousands of people that we rescued, and I'm like, Aziz, all these people are here because of you. Like, because you're so amazing, and we love you so much. We came here to get you, and all these people are here 
because of you and and he said something pretty profound he said um we're both you know, strong people of faith and he said you know we had prayed so many years this six years to get him out and god didn't answer his prayers to get to get me out but I believe that God's timing was perfect because if you would have came, if I would have got out earlier, then you would have never came here. Sure. But because God waited and let me stay there, you came, and now all these thousands of people under shows how selfless He is. Mm. And uh, yeah, so we go through the whole chronolo the chronological order of the of our relationship, but then all the very important policy things that happen. And uh, it's not meant to be a partisan book. Uh, I will admit that the decisions that are made that make the administration look good. But uh, but it's not meant to be partisan. It's just the truth of what happened. Sure. I just wanted I wanted to give an unbiased truth of what happened. Uh, the Pentagon had the book for five months to uh, review it and redact it. So they've I left the redactions in it. And so, so where they where they redacted is is still intact. It still says black lines. It's just black lines over it. So I wanted it to be that way. I wanted American people to see that you know the Pentagon didn't want you know certain things seen. And I think so, that's important. Yeah, so uh, it, and it's so it's available on presale now, savingaziz.org or any major book retail outlet. Uh, definitely get it, um, get a copy uh, to help us out for this sure. mission, and because uh, it, it's a, it's definitely a cause based project, and we still have many much work to do, and uh, and not only that, uh, uh, January seventeenth, so it's pre order now, January seventeenth it'll be out, and uh, we'll see not only that, but it was picked up for a film. So uh, oh, it's already wow. fully funded. Uh, most funds take forever to raise money for it. It was fully fully funded immediately, uh, upwards of like twenty six million dollars. I don't so know how be, it couldn't be. I mean, it, I heard, I believe it's uh, you guys say it in that Send Me movie, but a third of all evacuations uh, were you guys out of yeah, Afghanistan. Yeah, uh, that we're second largest evacuation next to U.S. military, but we've been the largest vetted uh, evacuation. That's amazing. And, um, yeah, and it's like I said, there's no way to describe it. it was as divine. I, and, oh, by the way, Glenn Beck wrote the forward to this oh, book. Oh, okay, so, great. So, and he actually re on the audio book he he reads it. So, in perfect Glenn Beck voice, he, he reads the whole book. <laughs> no, he reads the oh, uh, the forward. forward. Yeah. Okay, yeah, because I thought I saw on your Instagram you sitting and doing the the audio. Yeah, uh, reading. I was, and I went to dinner. He invited me to Dallas to speak at the Mercury One Gala, and it actually surprised me. And they gave me the Bonhoeffer Angel Award, which was like a huge honor. Uh, and so they gave me this award, but while I was sitting down with Glenn and he's like, how's the audio book coming? Cause we were talking about how hard it is to do an audio book. Uh -huh. And, uh, I said, it's good. I just, I just read your forward. And he's like, why'd you read your forward? Like, I, it's me talking about you. And I'm like, well, you're you, a busy guy. Yeah, yeah. Busy. yeah. So he, he, uh, he did it and he read, read the forward. So that's awesome. Yeah, pretty, pretty cool. Well, man, it, it, again, it, this has been amazing. And, and, uh, I, I do appreciate you sitting down and, and sharing your story and, and, it's it's just it's truly humbling to sit and talk with you and and uh, what I hope is that uh, you know when you guys get in your new place out there and in, in Conroe near the house I come by and maybe uh, let you roll me up or something yeah uh, maybe yeah. a good time uh, but man thank you so much Chad for first of all for everything you've done for our country for Aziz for these seventeen thousand people and more yeah. uh, and then uh, and then thank you for taking your time with me absolutely absolutely thanks so much man yeah thanks so much good luck yeah. with everything thank you all right bye bye.